0: Thank you for those thoughts. I I'm was impressed by this. This is a process of going to text, actually. We did it during the Zoom meetings, and it was always um, so rewarding to, to hear those thoughts. Uh, one of the most perplexing things about church history and about the contemporary church, and you've always got to think, especially in America, because that's the most glaring example of the problem, one of the most perplexing things is how little attention has actually been given to the teaching and example of Jesus himself as a source for Christian uh, guidance and Christian lifestyle, Christian values and practices. You, know, you could almost <clears throat> pick a, a standard textbook off the shelves on Christian moral philosophy and go to the index and look for Jesus and you'd hardly find any reference there at all. Uh, is, is really quite, really quite a, a striking feature, <clears throat> and I think there are a lot of reasons for this um, effective silencing of the moral voice of Jesus in the church and in Christian thinking, but probably the major reason for it is just how uncompromisingly radical and absolute his teaching is. Um, he allows no half measures. He doesn't just say, be as good as you can. You know, try a little harder. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, which is the kind of the, you know, the the most important and most um, challenging feature or example of Jesus' teaching, you just find these absolute uh, statements, these absolute demands piled up. There must be no anger. There must be no desire to retaliate, there must be no hatred, there must be no anxiety, there must be no divorce. You must have total integrity, you must have total love, you must totally forgive others, you must totally detach from material wealth. And it all just seems so impossibly um, challenging. And worse even than that is that Jesus sets up God as a kind of feasible role model for how you're supposed to do all this stuff. So, love your enemies, he says, so that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. Forgive in the same way that your Heavenly Father has forgiven. You must, at the end of uh, Matthew 5, you must be perfect, even as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So, it's no wonder, as one writer once commented, Christians spend a lot of their time and energy explaining why Jesus couldn't possibly have meant what he said. This is understandable. Jesus is an extremist, and we are all moderates. What is worse, he was an extremist in his whole way of life, not just some narrowly spiritual area, but in everything. So we have to find ways to dilute his teaching. So taking Jesus, even having the ambition to take Jesus seriously, in terms of his moral teaching, is a very disturbing business because he has an uncanny knack of making us feel very uncomfortable. And the temptation to try and water it all down seems not only irresistible, it almost seems obligatory if it's going to actually make much sense uh, to your daily life. And this problem or this feature applies even to the Beatitudes, uh, which you've always said are really familiar to you. Uh, they serve to introduce the Sermon on the Mount, which runs from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, and, as I said, is the is, is kind of showcase example of Jesus' teaching. And we're going to spend this week and the next time we gather together considering these Beatitudes. And later on, I want to, us to go through them one by one and just try and get some sense of what they're, what they're trying to um, extol. But what I want to do today is to kind of focus on the intention behind or the overall thrust of the, of the passage as a whole, how we're supposed to try and begin to make sense of them or to understand the kind of, I guess, the, the mental furniture within which these statements um, are, are framed. So the word beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus, which means happy. The Latin word translates the Greek word, which is the original word uh, used in the New Testament, the Greek word makarios, uh, which begins each of these nine statements, makarios are the poor in spirit, and so on, nine times. The word makarios is usually translated as, in our translation, by the word blessed or blessed. In the New English Bible and in the Jerusalem Bible, it's translated as happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, happy are those who are mourned, and so on. Uh, other translations have been suggested by uh, other translators, such as fortunate, how fortunate are those who are poor in spirit, or favoured, how favoured are they. Or well, one I came across recently, quite by, by sort of accident, was the word honourable, which I actually quite like. How honourable are the poor in spirit? You know, how, how worthy of, of being esteemed and revered? Uh, the people who exhibit these qualities. So we struggle to find a word that kind of is not as religious as the word blessed, but it's quite hard to do it. But the, if we're looking for the normal kind of way of of uh, rendering the, that term, then most of the experts agree that the word happy comes closest in English to the equivalent of uh, the Greek word makarios, which means that in the Beatitudes, as one commentator suggests Jesus is teaching his disciples how to be genuinely happy. So the Beatitudes are kind of wisdom sayings or or proverbial uh, maxims that describe what true happiness entails, what true fulfillment in life requires. But what a strange kind of happiness this is. The truly happy are the poor and the persecuted, the hungry and the thirsty, the wronged and the bereaved, the meek and the needy. Again, as one commentator rather wryly comments, this is evidently a very quiet kind of happiness. <laughs> 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 so the, the happiness can't possibly mean a kind of state of emotional elation or even spiritual satisfaction, I would think by no stretch of the imagination can the happiness of those who mourn be this heightened state of being exhilarated with, with their emotional um, reaction. Rather, the word probably... And it's, a bit, it's a bit like the word in the um, American Declaration of Independence which talks about um, endowed, the creator endowing people with these rights, which includes happiness, isn't the, the right to seek happiness. Maybe the word had a more robust meaning than it does uh, today. But I think the word, even if we do render it as happiness, I think what Jesus has in mind is a sense of security and well-being that comes from knowing God's companionship in times of desperate need, to a deep sense of assurance that God is on the side of those who suffer and to a sense of unshakable certainty, which I guess is the the difference with despair. I thought it was a really interesting uh, observation, Billy. A deep sense of unshakable certainty that God will eventually intervene to bring this sorrow and suffering to an end is the happiness that comes from knowing that you're not alone, knowing that your plight has not gone unnoticed by God that God is with you and God is for you. The poor and the persecuted, the meek and the mournful are blessed, not because they are poor and persecuted, meek and mournful, but because they know God's approval. They know God's presence in their pain and they know God's promise that one day things will change to bring an end to poverty and pain forever. And I think that's the point, Peter. You're kind of highlighting this—the this state of present blessedness—and yet it seems that the, the the reason for that blessedness lies in the future. I think the basic message of the of all the Beatitudes is that assurance of what what it means to be blessed in that condition. But I want to just give you four kinds of, you know, walls, <laughs> um, or four reference points for trying to understand. What's going on in these, you know, incredibly powerful and incredibly influential statements? So just just four kind of um, focuses or foci of these statements. The first is that the beatitudes have a whole of life focus, a whole of life focus. We often read them as a list of private spiritual virtues and the checklists that. Um, Saskia and Billy uh, and Andy talked about private spiritual virtues or mental attitudes that somehow we have to somehow have or, or aspire to attitudes that God esteems, such as humility and peaceableness and moral purity and remorse over, over, over wrongdoing and so on. Now, of course, the Beatitudes do include these inner virtues, but they go well beyond that to embrace actions as well as attitudes they summon the hearers to a whole way of life that lives out in practice these inner qualities and motivations uh, that are mentioned. So each of these pronouncements of blessings contains a, an implicit demand that goes with it. They're all just statements, they're not actually moral injunctions. They're all grammatically just straightforward statements, but each carries, I think, a corresponding summons to to a a way of life that corresponds to the attitudes that are uh, highlighted. So blessed are the merciful, for example, carries the corresponding demand. Therefore, act mercifully towards those who wrong you and you will be blessed. I think it's really important to sort of see that link between attitude and action because Jesus is surely not just wanting to comfort his hearers by reassuring them that God approves of their inner attitudes, that whatever they do is not so important, but it's you know, what, what's going on in their heart. He's also wanting to provoke a wholehearted commitment to a new, and actually when we get into the individual statements, perhaps the next time we'll see this, to a counterintuitive way of living in the real world. So the attitudes summon a way of life that challenges the present social and political realities and values that we see uh, all around us, has that whole of life focus. But why does Jesus demand, as he always does, this commitment to a distinctive way of living? The answer, because this is what God's kingdom is about which is the second focus of the beatitudes they have a kingdom focus so the list of beatitudes there's nine of them they begin and end with a reference to the kingdom of heaven so the first and the last beatitude refer to the kingdom of heaven it's a kind of you know the the experts us this kind of framing device so oral culture, didn't sort of have chapter headings or verse numbers or other ways of signalling the way things were to be sort of held together and to, and to interpret them. But one of the common things is to have a kind of opening and closing bracket that marks the, 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 the unit off. And as well as marking it off, it kind of highlights the theme that unites the whole unit. So it opens and closes with this reference to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Identical meaning, by the way. Kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of the one who is in heaven, the kingdom of God. So they describe the quality of life that is appropriate for those who are entering the kingdom of God, those who are striving to live in submission to the reign of God. And it's probably the case that when Jesus was formulating these beatitudes, he probably had... Um, Isaiah 61 in his mind because that was the same text that um, he uses or or came up when he was asked to read the scroll uh, in Luke 4 in the synagogue. You know, opened the scroll to Isaiah 61 and read it out. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So in the Beatitudes, these same people, the poor, the meek, the oppressed, the powerless, are declared blessed because of the Lord's favour, because of the year of the Lord's favour, because they have been embraced by the kingdom of God. So I'm sure you know this, but at the time of Jesus, the Jewish people were. Uh, looking forward, most of them were anyway. Not all. Um, the dudes who ran the show weren't, but most of the most of the people were looking forward, expectantly, uh, to the coming of God's kingdom on earth, to the to the arrival of God's rule on earth, uh, centered obviously in Jerusalem amongst the people. They knew that God rules over all creation that God's kingdom already exists God wasn't sort of waiting to become a king God clearly was ruler of all that God had created but they also recognized that all was not well in the realm famine disease violence evil uh occupation by a pagan overpower uh, all this seemed to deny the reality of God's lordship of God's kingship and so as well as constantly affirming the fact that God is the only true king of all that exists, they looked forward to the day that God would bring that spiritual reality, if you like, to earth in a way that would eventually bring all that was wrong in the realm back under his control. And that was the the essence of this hope for the coming of God's kingdom. And that's what John the Baptist was able to tap into when he went out into the wilderness, and people flooded out to this uh, this wilderness preacher because he's talking about this hope being realised. The central burden of Jesus' ministry was his claim that this expected event at the end of history, this long-awaited day of God coming to bring His rule, His healing rule to earth, had actually begun. It was actually now beginning in a very modest and very surprising way, but it was, and his his claim was beginning. It was beginning through himself and through his activity. That this new order, this new age, this new reality that people long for was being, in a modest kind of way, inaugurated through his own sphere of activity and through the community of people who were prepared to tap into this uh, thing that was going on uh, in his ministry that this hope for radical change had already commenced you now we're in the final um, the final act, and unsurprisingly that incredibly revolutionary message um, because as I said the dudes who rang the show weren't very keen on this idea of God coming and upsetting everything because they were doing very well, thank you, by being in charge, created revolutionary message, found its warmest reception, this message of liberation and social change, found its warmest reception amongst the most needy and disadvantaged people in society, which was, you know, 95% of people. So the reason why that particular clientele the mourners, the meek, and the persecuted are declared here to be blessed is again not because of their wretched condition, but because they are the ones who are participating, are called to participate in God's restoring activity. And this participation in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has both a present and a future aspect to it. So in the future, when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, the poverty and the oppression and the violence that they suffer here and now will be ended forever. Every tear will be wiped away from their eyes. The lion and the lamb will lie down forever. And the certainty of this future transformation brings blessedness, it even brings happiness to those who suffer now because they know for sure, because they've begun to experience this reality through Jesus, they know for sure that their pain is temporary and limited. But it's not a pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die kind of happiness because Jesus is not telling the weak and the oppressed, the poor and the persecuted to simply wait for the happiness of heaven when everything will be made writing in that sort of thing that Karl Marx derided as the opiate of the people. He's not suggesting just wait, you know, eventually it'll be all fine because the kingdom of God, as far as Jesus was concerned, is no longer just a future expectation. It's already begun to operate in the present age. This new order has already begun to break in. Change is already possible, which is why the first and the last beatitude are both in the present tense blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom not theirs will be eventually but theirs is the kingdom of heaven and again i just think <clears throat> in terms of in terms of sort of um making sense of the stuff it's really important to recognize that the poor and the maltreated on earth are not blessed because they are promised future happiness in heaven. They're blessed because by belonging to God's kingdom here and now, they can begin to experience the love and the power of God transforming their situation now, meeting their need, offering them a sense of dignity a sense of value, a sense of affirmation, all the things that they are denied by the prevailing order. So how does that work again in practice? In what way does participation in the kingdom of God concretely affect the situation of those who in light of current circumstances are mournful and persecuted and weak and oppressed? How does it How does it work? Well, at least partly it works because the kingdom of God in the teaching of Jesus and in the in the experience of his followers becomes a social reality in the community of those who follow Jesus as his disciples. It becomes incarnated in a community of people who are called to live out the justice and the peace and the mercy of the Beatitudes here and now a community that is committed to binding up the brokenhearted, to redistributing its wealth, to including the excluded, to working for reconciliation, to combating poverty, to striving for justice as testimony to this reality that they've just begun to experience. So for the hearers of Jesus, who were the ones who responded positively to him, The Beatitudes I think, have a twofold function. So on the one hand, yes, they, they provide hope and comfort. They provide a sense of reassurance that God's kingdom will eventually triumph, will eventually end the present pain and injustice that they know. But on the other hand, as one German scholar put it, they are declarations of war against poverty, hunger and tears declarations of war against poverty, hunger, and tears. A call to this new community, uh, assembled and defined by Jesus, to live out the priorities of the Beatitudes, here and now, in their their own relationships, but even beyond that. Which is where they have this disturbing radicalism, even though they are statements you put on cards that send to somebody in hospital, uh, actually, they have a really disturbing radicalism about them because they are this charter for Christian uh, values and, and practices and action of the world. So the third thing is that the Beatitudes have a corporate focus or a communal focus. So again, the checklist observation, traditionally, we have understood them and we all hear them when we when we uh, listen to them read out, we hear them as descriptions of individual character traits that every true believer ought to display. Uh, I call it a sainthood, basically. And um, because we all struggle to be saints, then despair <laughs> despair is the um, is the more common response. But before we despair. It's worth noting that Beatitudes are addressed to the disciples as a group. They are all in the plural form, and they all take the form of descriptions, not demands, which suggests that the Beatitudes are not, in the first instance, a list of individual moral attributes, but rather the description of what the community of Jesus ought to look like. What the community of those who are embraced by the work that Jesus is part of, what it ought to be like, the, the values and the practices and the priorities that it ought to embody and display in its life together. A community that honors the poor, that demonstrates integrity, that craves for justice, that prefers mercy over punishment, that makes peace not war, that suffers non-violently for its commitment to Jesus. Now, of course, that requires that every member of that community strives to live out these qualities. Of course, that's that's part part of the deal. But we'll only ever be inspired to do so, and we can only ever be empowered to do so by being surrounded by a group of fellow pilgrims and fellow sinners who share the same ambition. So moral philosophers tell us that moral character is shaped by the communities we belong to, by the families, by the schools, by the clubs, by the, you know, the churches, that we, the, the, the firms, the, the jobs and so on that we, we spend our waking hours participating in. That moral character is shaped by the communities we are part of. We learn to be virtuous individuals by belonging to a community that prizes and practices those virtues. Uh, We kind of absorb it unconsciously by observing role models of these people around us who show us what it's like to be a particularly virtuous person. So we learn to be forgiving and to be merciful as individuals by belonging to a community that esteems mercy and forgiveness as a way of life. We learn to be peacemakers by being part of a larger group that values and works for peace and reconciliation. We learn to be pure in heart by imitating others in the community that show us what purity in heart is all about. As individuals, we will always and repeatedly fail to achieve these qualities. But the community is larger than the sum of its parts. It's the collective faithfulness of others that sustains us when we struggle to, 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 to aspire to these, these values ourselves. So final, final observation. How do we know what poverty of spirit or purity of heart or mercifulness or hungering and thirsting for righteousness, how do we know what that actually means? What what how do we, what content do we give to these qualities? Well, this brings to the fourth observation. The Beatitudes have a Christ-centered focus. So this is not just a list of abstract moral principles that any reasonable person can understand. And when we go through them one by one, some of these things are not only not reasonable, they are positively dismissed and distrusted uh, sort of in the larger moral community that we're part of in terms of wider society. So not just a list of self-evident sort of moral truisms, they're actually descriptions of the kind of person that Jesus was. His His... His life, his words, or his his practices, uh, embodied his teaching. His life gives content to what he said within his words. His actions and his relationships illustrate his um, his demands, his moral precepts. So, know what humility and mercy and peacemaking and righteousness mean by looking at the way Jesus lived. Somebody's called him the only truly happy man who ever lived, in the sense. The person who perfectly fulfilled these qualities. So, in the Beatitudes, Jesus pronounces blessing on the meek. The word meek occurs only twi- two other times in the Gospel of Matthew, and they're both refer to Jesus. We learn to be meek by emulating, even imitating, the meekness of Jesus. Jesus goes on to describe his followers as the light of the world. Jesus elsewhere describes himself as the light of the world. We will function as light in the world when we live like Jesus lived. Jesus blesses the peacemakers. Jesus himself is the Prince of Peace who brought God's peace to earth. We learn what peacemaking means. By looking at how Jesus operated. So, in all these things, Jesus is our model. The Beatitudes summon us to nothing less than Christlikeness, to being transformed into His image. So, the Beatitudes, I think, are best understood as descriptions of a whole way of life that the community of Jesus' followers are called to live a life that is modeled on Jesus, and for that reason, bears witness to the transforming reality of the kingdom of God. It offers us a vision of reality, uh, a moral scale of values that actually stands in stark contradiction to what we see around us in the world. But that contradiction is because Jesus made this audacious claim that the world as we know it is actually passing away. And a new world is in the process of coming to birth. And this new world is characterized by the qualities that he esteems in these uh, Beatitudes. So that our call as part of the community of Christ is to be agents of that new world that is coming to birth still, and still in a a fledgling way in the midst of the old world, which is, I guess, why the Beatitudes are followed by the famous sayings on salt and light, which was the sentence in our liturgy. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven.